So, on the way, um, on the way to the hall, um, just now I was struck by two things. First is um, is a question that kind of has occurred to me a few times over the last couple of days, which is is it actually is it really August in the south of France <laughs> that we're in? <laughs> Or, you know, have we somehow in some magical way been transported <laughs> somewhere else? <laughs> and, yeah, I find it, you know, I've been talking a lot about impermanence, but um, this weather's pretty persistent. <laughs> <laughs> so a real, yeah, it's a real opportunity to kind of be struck by it and then, yeah, just to stay with that question, actually. The second thing um, that struck me, and I can't promise that either of these will be relate to the talk somehow. I'll try, <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> it was just as I was as I was walking in um, to the hall and uh, having to kind of step into other people's shoes to to make it with dry feet. It reminded me of um, of one of my favorite quotes from Gandhi. He said um, that you could never really understand anyone. Therefore, you could never really help anyone unless you've walked in their shoes. And so as I was kind of doing that, which I've done a few times, walking in your shoes to get in here. I was really struck by that. And uh, and also want to apologize if you, you know, would have preferred that I didn't step in your <laughs> shoes and can admit that I've been doing it. <laughs> so yeah, let's see if, if these actually weave themselves in or not. So I'd like to, um, to this evening, to look a little bit more at a question that's kind of been one of the real themes of, of the retreat so far. Which is um, this attitude of welcoming, of experience, or of metta. And how to, both what that supports us to see and to understand, and how to uh, apply it more and more in our practice and our lives. With With a real encouragement for all of us, um, from this understanding of, of the pliability of the mind. From the understanding that perception is impacted by the state of mind. Par, par 
So an encouragement to all of us to really kind of believe in the possibility that we have. To understand more deeply and to um, cultivate the wholesome in our lives. Skillful, beneficial, beneficial, skillful. I said wholesome. Yeah. I don't know if it's a. Yeah, maybe beneficial. Yeah, would be another way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think Nathan was was speaking about this um, way of practicing today. This morning, about the possibility to train our mind to be more uh, welcoming to experience, more open. And one uh, one of the senior teachers in our tradition, Christina Feldman, she suggests that whenever we encounter aversion in the mind we bring in the meta practice and really doing it with little things you know you stub your toe or you slam a door by accident <laughs> Or you drop something. You know, just those little everyday things that we get annoyed or irritated by. And if we can develop the intention to respond, when we hear that voice, when we see that reaction of like, oh, with an attitude of metta. So it can be, you know, a phrase that we use from the practice or or something else that just kind of, you know, a hand kind of touching ourselves kindly. <laughs> I can kind of remind us to kind of just step back into the non-aversive. Not as a way, this is really important, not as a way of suppressing the aversive response or thinking that that's not a, a, a valid movement in the mind. But as a way of, of creating that bigger container that Nath was talking about last night. So that it's not just that aversive reaction, but it's held in something bigger, wider, more spacious. 
So it's really, yeah, it's really important with metta practice. It's not a feel better practice. Just. Yeah, sometimes it has that aspect to it and that's great. But it's also um, a very deep insight practice. And I'm, I'm, I want to go into that more. So through the practice, as we do the practice, we can actually see the dependent nature of things. So that point, which I think, again, we've been mentioned, that it's not in the, the unhappiness or happiness that we feel is not in the thing or the person or the um, aspect of our character. It's in the relationship. So it's in the relationship and it's in the interdependence. So I just want to give a few examples from the actual practice that highlight this. So, you know, we're pra- maybe we're practicing metta towards ourselves or towards someone else. And we can start to see that, you know, as the, the state of the citta changes with the natural flow of the meditation, the ups and downs, different conditions, this will affect the perception of whoever the metta is um, directed towards. So if the sense of the metta is strong in the being, there's quite a bit of calmness and quite a bit of spaciousness. The sense of problematic about the sense of what is problematic about ourselves will be um, really loose, won't have much density to it. Or if we're practicing metta towards someone else, even a, a person that we feel a little difficult, if the metta is strong, there'll be a sense of closeness, even with that difficulty. And if the metta is less strong, you know, we're tired maybe, or we're hungry, or, you know, we're distracted by it for whatever reason... the way we perceive ourselves or another will be affected by that. Yeah, there's a relationship there. And the relationship goes both ways. Yeah, this is also really important to see. So, for example, I'm having some difficulty with um, an aspect of my personality. 
so it's difficult to generate meta towards myself. If I shift and look at qualities that I appreciate about myself, or bring to mind someone that I feel meta towards easily, the meta will grow stronger. Does this make sense to people? So there's a mutual dependency. So right there, just in breaking down the practice to, to what I've just spoken about, this is a very deep insight. You know, some, um, some of the tradition, they'll say the deepest insight. Sometimes spoken about as emptiness, just to throw out the word. But we can also just say, you know, it's seeing the, the, the mutual dependency that nothing exists on its own, but things are mutually dependent. And when we say emptiness, not empty as in being nothing, but emptiness of a separate independent essence. Yeah, so my um, so the, 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 the power of my meta practice is not independent of conditions. Yeah, it's conditioned by my cheetah state, heart, mind, body, object of the practice. Yeah, so we can play with all of this. <coughs> Emptiness allows play. <coughs> so we can see this, um, you know, in other ways in the practice. And I, I kind of really, I'm going to really stay with this for a little while. <laughs> It's so important. So, you know, in the practice, we have these different categories that we've been working with. You know, the easy person, the challenging person, the neutral person. So here's an interesting one. <coughs> the same person can sometimes be in the easy category and sometimes can be in the challenging category. Yeah, the same person. Yeah, so you obviously know this experience. So again, empty. It's empty. The person is empty. It's not, the essence is not in the person that's making them difficult or easy. It's conditioned, and it's changing. 
And what happens when we can remember that? Yes, the kind of million dollar question. <laughs> what happens to our own sense of well-being when we can remember that? And so here's another example. So often, traditionally, the neutral person is described as the most difficult to generate metta towards. And I've been hearing that, you know, for a while. Because <laughs> the sense is that, like many neutral experiences, there's not enough in the neutral person to keep our attention with them. And I've been doing a lot of meta practice in the last couple of years. And I discovered for myself that the neutral person is often the most easeful for me. Because there's the least charge. So doing the metta practice to the neutral person is just very spacious and easeful for me. Because there can be subtle levels of charge, both with difficult, easy, or of being invested in. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. Again, it's really interesting to start looking at the subtleties of this process. So they're seeing very clearly the, the dukkha in the clinging or in the charge, in the investment. So, what does that mean in a bigger picture? It means that the other, whether the other is neutral or easy or challenging, whether the other is a part of myself that I, you know, am othering, So the other is not separate from my mind. This is, yeah, again, this is really cool. (laughs) Cool. C'est cool. The other is not separate from my mind. Which is completely counterintuitive to how we usually feel and operate, yeah? Other implies separation. You are different to me. And yet when we look at at what we see in practice, then what comes back is not separate. So I only know the other through my perception. which is always colored by the state of the chitta. It's always colored by the glasses that I have on at that point. 
And so what this means is that we can experiment. Yeah, if the other is not separate from my mind, if I'm influenced by the state, the perception is influenced by the state of the citta, I can really play, I can really um, experiment. with this pliability, changeability, flexibility of, of the mind. And I really like this word pliability <laughs> of the mind. I really like that. It makes me think of plasticine or Play-Doh. Yeah? It's like, huh, we can actually... This, this is something that can change shape, not fixed. So what we're doing, in, in, in particularly in the welcoming, in the metta practice, is we're doing this. We're choosing to see others or aspects of ourselves as friends. We're, we're choosing to see others or aspects of ourselves as friends. Or if friends is, is too much of a stretch, we're choosing to see them as subject to causes and conditions. Yeah, sometimes sorry. Yeah. Sometimes it, it some situations it'll be too much of a stretch to see someone as a friend. But we can see them as someone that's subject to causes and conditions. Or in other words, not actually fully in control of their actions. So what does this what does this allow? So I, I want to give an example. Some of you have heard it before. I really have to, to make an effort to get some new stories. <laughs> some poor souls here heard these many times. Anyway. So um, every year we, we um, do a facilitate a work retreat in a leprosy community in India. And uh, we do a lot of work in the um, in the home for elderly people in the in the community. Things like massage, hair combing, nail cutting—you know—very basic personal contact, personal care. And for many years, within the, the elderly people's home, there was a young woman called Jyoti living there. Uh, 
Um, she had very severe arthritis, so she was uh, bedridden. And com completely limited in her movement. And so because of, of her situation uh, being, you know, she was in her 20s, Every year when we'd come with a group of volunteers, um, she would attract a lot of attention, a lot of love and care. And she was very, 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 a lot of need and also very, very beautiful soul. So people would spend time with her and bathe her and look after her. And also give her, bring her a lot of treats. Whenever I think of her, I can hear her voice in my head saying, Cake, cake! <laughs> cake. Yeah, she just used to say it in a night. Gâteau. Yeah. <laughs> she had a very special way of saying it. And unfortunately, this uh, dynamic caused jealousy. And uh, the jealousy, um, especially amongst the, the women who had more power in, the, in that environment... Would manifest in um, shouting or being unpleasant to to Jyoti, to this very helpless um, young woman. So, this is one one um, occasion when this came up. And one of, we were, uh, a bunch of us was in the room with, with Jyoti, a group of us. And also giving massage to some of the other ladies staying with, with her in the room. And one of the attendants, who's a very large, strong woman, came in and started shouting. And it was, of course, very difficult to, to be present with that. So myself and uh, one of the other volunteers who spoke some Hindi um, approached her. And we, we kind of put our arms around her. And we just led her out of the room into the courtyard. So that her anger wouldn't have more impact on, on the other women there and on Jyoti. And she was shouting and, and telling us, you know, why are you, why are you giving her all this attention? Why does she get all this extra food? Why, why, why? Okay. 
and also telling us all the work that she and the other attendants had to do um, in general and then specifically for, to care for Dioti. And we mostly just listened. And when there was a feeling that there was space, we very gently said, you know, but she can't do this for herself. She can't wash her own clothes, she can't bathe her own body. And she listened back and then she went back to her complaints. And this went on for a little while. And eventually she burst into tears. And she said just one sentence. She said, but what about me? Yeah, what about me? And baby herself is a leprosy patient. <laughs> yeah. This woman, this attendant herself is a leprosy patient. So she herself is, is suffering with, with pain, with disability. And so what happens when we can see that? And we can see that, you know, the anger and the unjust behavior is also coming out of pain. It goes back to what I said before. Can we see, even if we can't see someone as a friend, can we see the causes and conditions? And can we do that without um, supporting or justifying harmful behavior? Can we separate the actions from the essence? So actions that are harmful, not the person being evil. So what does that do when we're able to do that? What does that do to the other? What does that do to ourselves? And how does that affect the situation? So once she started crying, the situation changed. Yeah, because she got in touch with the pain, there was space, there was support. And there was a lot of love. There's a shouting and the blame turned to expression of her own pain. And once she had cried for a while, She turned to us and said, come on, I'm going to make some tea. Which is the beginning of a, a daily ritual that has carried on for years. 
And I, I always come back to this, and I come back to this woman baby <laughs> as a great teacher, an ongoing teacher. Because she continues to behave in ways that I find sometimes intolerable. And yet, that's not the whole picture. <laughs> he also carries an incredible amount of pain. And she's also very generous. So she's, like all of us, multi-dimensional. And a product of conditions. So that separation between actions and essence. And the real, it's the real difficulty in kind of staying open to the complexity of, of human beings. This is really the heart of this welcoming, opening, and meta practice. The more we practice in this way, both formally on the cushion and in life, the more metta, compassion, joy arise naturally in, in the citta, in our mind. So the more accessible they are and natural. And we can begin to see that it's not only others or aspects of ourselves that are um, dependent on the state of, of the mind. It's also how we perceive events or things in the world. So when there's generosity, gratitude, compassion, when that is strong in the mind, it affects everything that we perceive. Sorry. <laughs> it affects everything that we perceive. And I think, again, that's an experience that we all no, when there's a lot of gratitude in the being, it's very difficult to get irritated by things. So I have another example. <laughs> very different. Hopefully I won't make you cry this time. <laughs> So this is also from India, but very different situation. So one time 
Nathan and I were um, getting on a train. It was very crowded. <laughs> there was this kind of like huge block of people trying to get on the train. And as I was, I was wearing Crocs. Do you know? Everyone knows, knows Crocs. Yeah. You don't know. Well, it's, it's just the plastic slip-on shoes. So as I was getting on the train with one foot on the step and the other in the air, the croc and the foot that was on the air slipped off and fell into the gap between the train and the platform. You know, I just carried on getting on the train. I thought, okay, you know, one croc. I've got another pair of footwear somewhere in my... In my um, Yeah, somewhere in my luggage, there's another pair of shoes. I'll be fine. But all those people that had been crowding to get on the train behind me really cared about the croc. So there was a huge group effort to fish it out. You know, it included people reaching down. <coughs> it included an attempt to lower a child down into the gap so they could pick it up. <laughs> and finally, and this last one succeeded... They actually took a stick from a beggar and with that stick managed to fish the croc out and give it to me. <coughs> so yeah, only in India. So we were quite, you know, so we got on the train, sat down and we were really blown away by this experience. <laughs> You know, both by yeah, sorry, both by a sense of gratitude and a sense of appreciation for all the creativity that had happened, <laughs> even though we would have preferred that the child hadn't been lowered down. <laughs> and so, as we were settling in to our seats and arranging our things. we realized that probably at some point in that whole process, we'd also been pickpocketed. <laughs> so, you know, the wallet, which I think, I can't remember if it was in my pocket or Nathan's, was no longer there. And the amazing thing was that it did not matter. Yeah. So the croc itself obviously didn't matter. But the effort and what people had done, their care, really mattered. 
so having that state of mind of gratitude and appreciation losing you know a few hundred rupees just could not stick just couldn't stick couldn't make an impact. So, part of our training is to see this more clearly. That states of mind that are open and appreciative make us Um, much more resourced. So aversion or anger, they just can't stick. And we stay much more in tune with what really matters. And we can see In our experience, we can also see the opposite. So whenever the cheetah is um, contracted in some form of self-interest or self-absorption, the world actually appears more challenging, yeah? Or more threatening. There's a direct connection. And in a small way, you know, I think we've been able to feel that here over over these days. So sometimes, you know, it's wet and we're cold. And we signed up for a retreat in August in the south of France. <laughs> Not, you know, to this, whatever it is. And so as we contract in that, you know, this this is not what I want, which is, you know, not an unreasonable thing to feel. <laughs> it, it actually becomes worse. If we can open... Even a little bit. Welcome even a little bit. As Nathan said yesterday, if we just can stay in contact, it's just a cold wind. Or if we shift the view from just what's good for me to I'm so grateful that it's finally raining. because it looks really dry around here. And you can see it if you look at the grass. It's not normally this brown this time. Then it can shift our experience. So yeah, maybe I'm cold. But at least there's some water coming. 
to, to nourish life. And sometimes that's really possible to make that shift. It's not necessarily easy, but it's possible. It can also really help us to remember that thoughts and actions that are beneficial, that are helpful, they affect the present experience. But they also sow seeds for the future. The more we practice this, the more we bring our mind into these um, intentions or attitudes, the more, sorry, the more easily the mind will come back. So, Pema Chodron has a, a, a book with a wonderful title. She's got actually many books with wonderful titles, but this is one. It's called The Wisdom of No Escape. We can always apply welcoming and metta to aspect of our experience. Sometimes we might feel that there's something in the experience that is too overwhelming to open to. Or to welcome. So we don't have to force ourselves to go right into that. We can instead welcome, open. to some of the other layers of the experience. So if there's a sense of, I'm holding this, I can just apply the welcoming, the opening to the holding. There's a, a lot of beautiful myths about the Buddha's awakening under the tree. One of them is quite, uses quite a lot of imagery. So the Buddha was sitting under the tree determined 
to sit there until he understood the causes of suffering. And how to overcome them. And how to overcome them. And as he was sitting there, Mara, who's um, portrayed as a kind of demon, but symbolizes all the, all the challenges that we face in practice. So Mara appears and he's shooting arrows again <laughs> at the Buddha. And these arrows are fear, desire, self-doubt, all these things that, you know, none of us know, <laughs> never experienced. <laughs> Poor Buddha. And the, this particular image is that as the arrows are being, are kind of heading towards the Buddha. He's meeting them with openness and calmness. So while they're in the air, they change. And they become flowers. So he's showered with flowers. And it's such a beautiful image for what our mind can do. In the mind. So it doesn't matter what life throws at us. We can train to turn it into flowers. With a lot of patience, a lot of care. And this is so important, not just for our own well-being, but because of the way it affects the world. So the more our inner life changes, the more the world changes with it. The more effect we have in the world. So I want to close with at least one quote from this book. So in this book, um, he uses the word kinship. It's a kind of fraternité, no? It's like seeing others as your kin, which means your family. 
I think it's fraternité. Yeah. That's how I would translate it. <laughs> and I think, you know, when I saw it, I thought, oh, wow, that's such a great word for metta. I've never heard it translated that way. And he quotes Mother Teresa. And uh, this is what he says. He says, Mother, sorry, yeah. Mother Teresa diagnosed the world's problems in this way. We have forgotten that we belong to each other. We have forgotten that we're family. Kinship is what happens to us when we refuse to let that happen. So when we refuse to forget. With kinship as the goal, as the intention, other essential things fall into place. Without kinship, there can be no justice and no peace. And this is him. He says, I suspect that were kinship our goal and our intention, if it was our goal and our, in and our intention, we would no longer be looking for justice. We would be celebrating it. So let's have a quiet moment to close together. So may our practice together continue to open us to our interdependence. And to the possibility of living well and in harmony with all beings, including ourselves. <laughs> 